Welcome again to uh, ATA Digital's podcast series. Now we're in our third episode, and today we have with us Dr. Dharmaraj. Dr. Havila Dharmaraj uh, is the head of uh, the Department of Biblical Studies at the South Asian Institute of Advanced Christian Studies, also known as SIACS at Bangalore. She holds a PhD um, in Old Testament from the University of Durham, UK, an MSc in Biochemistry from the University of Bangalore, and an MA in Christian Studies from SIACS. Some uh, of her recent publications are uh, the South Asian Biblical Bible Commentary. She's the editor and a contributor in that. Uh, this is with Zondervan uh, in Grand Rapids. And uh, then she has a book, Altogether Lovely, a thematic intertextual reading of the Song of Songs, which is with Fortress Press. This is uh, a publication in 2017. And then uh, in 2019, she uh, had her commentary on the Book of Ruth in the Asia Bible Commentary series with Langham Global Library come out. So Dr. Dharmaraj is an accomplished scholar and we are privileged to have her with us. I hope you will all enjoy this conversation and join uh, with us as we talk further. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Dharmaraj. Uh, you're very welcome. So Dr. Dharmaraj, before we get into your chapter in Asian Christian theology and talk about the nuts and bolts of it, let's start with getting to know you a bit. Um, let's know the person behind the words. Right. At heart, I'm a teacher. I started with teaching in Sunday school when I was 16, I think. And ever since then, that's a, a vocation that has uh, really absorbed uh, all of my energies and my time. Uh, I thoroughly enjoy being with my students here at SACS where I teach. And one of the big things I do uh, with the classes I teach is to help retrieve our tradition of storytelling and see how storytelling can be used um, in the church, not just at Sunday school, but uh, also in the pulpit. Um, other than that, I uh, potter around my garden when I have the time, and uh, we've been growing all manner of vegetables. It's getting really hot now, so it's a dry season. Uh, we have two dogs. Uh, one is a golden retriever. Her name is Rachel. And we have a uh, indie Doberman cross called Leia. So Rahil and Leah are the two dogs we have. Lovely. Um, I like the combination of a garden, dogs, uh, and uh, talking about narratives and stories. Uh, that sounds like a really nice life in Bangalore. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so your chapter uh, in Asian uh, Christian Theology, the book that we're going through, um, uh, the title of the chapter is The Doctrine of Scripture and Asian Conversation. And... Uh, before we uh, get into the specifics of the chapter, um, uh, on uh, towards the beginning of this chapter, you talk about how Asian Christians find themselves developing a doctrine of the Bible in conversation with the sacred texts of their neighbors. So uh, I want us to start off uh, by just talking about this word uh, doctrine. And uh, because generally when we talk about doctrine, uh, we are thinking of sometimes it even has negative connotations when we talk about like someone being indoctrinated and we have this very um, uh, suffocating idea of doctrine. What do you mean by doctrine when you're uh, starting off your chapter with this? Well, doctrine is one of those Christianese words, isn't it? Only we understand what it means, but uh, perhaps we don't really. Doctrine is the end point of what is called systematic theology or doctrinal theology uh, or even dogmatic theology. 
doctrine is the end point of that study. Uh, what the study does is to put together all the texts that engage with a specific topic and it works through these texts to track all the common threads and it tries to come to a condensed and precisely worded summary statement on that topic. Um, and these topics can be uh, the nature of God, the nature of human beings, sin, salvation, scripture, baptism, holy communion, the second coming. Uh, these are the topics on which systematic theology works to extract doctrines. And then this summary statement, the doctrine, becomes prescriptive for the faith and for the belief of the church. Now see, all of these doctrines are affirmed and reiterated over and over in the churches we go to, some more than others perhaps. In those churches in which we say the Apostolic Creed or the Nicene Creed, we are doing it every Sunday. We are um, affirming uh, and reiterating a series of doctrines about God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Uh, those churches which have catechisms, Mm, that's what you train your children into before they uh, make a public declaration of their faith. And in seminaries, of course, we take this course. Uh, some call it Christian theology, some call it systematic theology, or dogmatic or doctrinal theology. But doctrines are very much part of our everyday life as a Christian. Um, uh, historically, these doctrines have been developed uh, by the church in what is now largely the Western world. Uh, so let's say the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, Nicaea, uh, which is in modern day Turkey, 325 AD, or the doctrine of the humanity and the deity of Christ, Chalcedon, uh, modern day Turkey again in 451. And then there's the Italian priest Thomas Aquinas with the Summa Theologica, 1485. So uh, even in the present day in our seminaries, the systematic theology textbooks that we are using in majority world seminaries are still coming from the West. So you have your Wayne Grudem, your uh, Millard Erickson. Uh, so what we're trying to do here in this chapter is to understand a doctrine alongside a parallel idea or concept or belief in a contemporary religion. Uh, the questions we're asking is, how do we understand revelation and inspiration of the Bible alongside the Hindu or Islamic understandings of those terms? What are the similarities? What are the differences? Um, so this developing of our doctrines and engagement with uh, parallel concepts from other religions, uh, what does it do? It clarifies what we believe as we live in a religiously plural environment. And what does it also do? It equips us to engage in conversation with peoples of other faiths on these topics. Thank you. Um, so as you answered that, uh, I noticed that... Um, and uh, looking at that quote again, Asian Christians find themselves developing a doctrine of the Bible. So there's a developing, like a continual aspect to it. On the other hand, we also have the historically located uh, uh, points that you uh, pointed out, Nicaea and then uh, the Summa Theologica. So uh, these uh, were like fixed points in history and we also refer back to them. So uh, what does it mean when we say Asian Christians are developing, uh, uh, find themselves developing a doctrine? Because uh, there seems to be this fixed nature to doctrine also that isn't doctrine fixed, that this is the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the doctrine of salvation, and aren't we just supposed to imbibe them in our lives and live by them? 
Right. Uh, we could do that, and I think generations have done that in the majority world and suffered no damage. Uh, it is that we want to be effective Christians in the places where we are, right? And uh, uh, nearly all the places that we live in in the majority world have religions living cheek by jowl. So now you see in South uh, Asia, we have uh, Hinduism, we have Islam, two major religions. We have Buddhism, we have Sikhism, we have Jainism, we have the Parsis, we even have uh, a very small community of uh, Jews, uh, Judaism. So when we live growing up with neighbors that uh, follow other faiths, uh, how are we going to reach out to them unless we're able to dialogue with them or engage with them on matters of faith that are common to both of us? And mm, sacred scripture, whether oral or written, is very much part of uh, uh, that initial dialogue, isn't it? What does your scripture say? What does my scripture say? And the uh, most basic starting point for that conversation might well be, uh, what is the nature of your scripture? What is the nature of mine? How do you understand uh, revelation or inspiration in your scriptures? You see, uh, so we could just be isolated Christians and uh, do nothing but uh, Grudem and Megrath. Uh, but if we want to be effective Christians where we are, we develop a strategy for uh, engaging with the concepts that are part of our uh, faith and practice with parallel concepts in the faith and practice of our neighbors. And that happens every generation afresh. Mm. So there is this dynamic aspect to doctrine if they are truly to engage and be relevant in the context that we inhabit. Right. That's not going to change what we believe, mm -hmm. but it's going to change how we see what believe. Uh, no, it's going to change how we see what we believe with respect to what others believe. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, comparative doctrines, if you like. Right. When we're able to see things side by side and then we understand what we believe with respect to what the other believes. Right. Right. Oh, that is very helpful, which actually brings me to um, another section in the chapter where you uh, lay out the um, differences in what we assume to be a given, the idea of prophets in the Old Testament. And you point out how former prophets in the Old Testament actually are Joshua judges and the undivided books of Samuel and Kings. For us, those are not, <laughs> we don't immediately think about these books as prophets. And you lay out how... Uh, the Jewish uh, uh, populace from that time saw these as prophets and what were their criteria for that. And yet we see these differently. So I'm trying to understand, uh, again, going uh, about the context and locatedness. Uh, when we as Christians uh, uh, read these or see these differently, is it a difference between uh, a Jewish and a Christian reading of the sections or is it a difference between readings of these uh, sections of the Old Testament uh, based on just the location and time and not necessarily the faith uh, system that we are within. Um, right. Uh, what we need to understand is that we stand within the Judeo-Christian tradition and so trying to splice them apart and say is this Jewish, is this Christian might not be so helpful. Uh, and definitely with the Old Testament, uh, what we call the Hebrew Bible, uh, now this is a scripture of Judaism. And this is a scripture that has been passed on to us, uh, that we have received with both hands and um, 
uh, adopted into our faith and practice. So, uh, if if we consider ourselves standing in that tradition, the Judeo-Christian, then we need to pay attention to how Judaism reads these categories or the sections of the Old Testament, the Torah, the law, and then the prophets, uh, the Navim, and then the Ketuvim or the writings. Those are their three um, uh, parts uh, to the Old Testament. Uh, so, uh, standing as we do in this long line of faith communities, Jewish and Christian, that have received and interpreted the Hebrew Bible, uh, we understand that the categories of the Hebrew Bible illuminate us and also inform us. So thus, if we look at the historical books, we call them history, don't we? So if you look at the historical books of um, Joshua, Judges, Samuels, the two books and the Kings and Chronicles, uh, we might see them as a succession of judges and prophets and uh, judges and leaders really, uh, judges and kings. Um, but seeing the historical books as books of the prophets uh, reminds us of their value as the word of God spoken through his agents, the prophets, spoken into the lives of the aforementioned leaders, judges, kings, and even commoners. Otherwise, think about it, judges and Samuel and kings would simply be the history of another ancient people, the history of Israel, and it would have very little relevance for us. Uh, no wonder there are some Indian scholars who wonder if the Old Testament should just be replaced with ancient Hindu scriptures such as the Vedas. Uh, and Indian Christians could track Christ from the Vedas into the New Testament instead of from the Hebrew Bible into the New Testament. Now that is not something that we want to do, right? And so reading the Old Testament as Judaism reads it uh, helps sometimes to see how the Old Testament and the New are so deeply interconnected so deeply interconnected that in the end all of them speak of one person and that person is Jesus. And so yes, we do get our orderings of books and sectioning of the categories from the Septuagint. Uh, we get law, history, poetry, wisdom, prophets, but that isn't necessarily a helpful arrangement to understand how prophets are part of the history of the people of God, whether that be the ancient um, Israel community or the church community to which we belong. Mm. So um, now to uh, go back to the first uh, question in this it, it would seem that um, when we are uh, studying scripture and uh, forming doctrine, we are engaged in a conversation which goes one way, uh, let's say, towards the past, towards uh, the Jewish his history that we are still connected with because of the same God who spoke to them speaks to us. And yet, because of our location where we are, and our, as you said, we are uh, cheek to jowl with our neighbors so it's an unavoidable conversation there too so uh christian communities in asia are somehow engaged in a multi-direction directional uh, conversation is that how you would define it or see it mm, uh, well with respect to the text it's not so much a conversation as a discovery uh, of the background of the text and who the first audience of the text was and that's why we learn our Old Testament history what is the background uh, uh, what empires uh, rose and fell uh, over the period uh, Joshua to uh, Chronicles uh, so that's more investigation and that's more learning uh, what we do with the text and studying the background the world of the text or the world behind the text uh, and then we take the text into context which is where we live now uh, and then 
we engage what we uh, know of the text with the people around us and their faiths and their world views and their belief systems. Mm. So with the history, uh, studying the history and uh, what happened at that time around it, we are trying to understand the text within its original context. And then we somehow, uh, we also need to transpose it to our setting and also read it from within that. Right. So what happened then and there becomes relevant to what is happening here and now. Um, that's how uh, hermeneutics works. That's how the whole business of biblical interpretation works. So somewhere in this uh, continuum is the place for doctrines. Uh, what happened then and there, uh, our reading and understanding and interpretation of the biblical text helps us to formulate doctrines what we believe about God and humans and his world. And then those we take and engage into the here and now of our living in a religiously pluralistic society. Hmm. Thank you. That is very helpful. So let's uh, get into a bit about the text, the scripture itself. Um, uh, you uh, write uh, in your chapter, uh, the prophets containing these seven books were cons considered to be sacred writ by the time the Jews had returned from Babel from the Babylonian exile and resettled in a now impoverished land. So from this, as I was reading this, um, could you help us understand the process? Because the prophets were written before, but then the uh, Israelites went into exile and then they came back uh, and resettled in the land. And that is when these became sacred writ. So how did the Jewish community come to uh, a realization or a consensus that this was the sacred writ? Is it just community consensus? How does this happen? <laughs> um, now the formation of the canon, when we say canon, we are talking about all the 66 books of our Protestant Bible. The formation of the canon, uh, the putting together of these books uh, has dual agency. Uh, meaning to say it has God and it has humans as two components of that uh, agency. Uh, now why are these 66 books authoritative for the church? They are authoritative books because God inspires them. But they are also authoritative books because humans recognize them as being so. So there's two parts to the authority of the 66 books that form the Protestant canon. Um, God inspires them, though they so they are authoritative. Human beings recognize them as being so, and that's why they are authoritative. And so we can say that these 66 books are a collection of authoritative books, and also an authoritative collection of books. So when we say it's a collection of authoritative books, we mean God inspired, God breathed. And when we say it's an authoritative collection of books, we mean recognized as inspired by communities and church councils. And now uh, to move on to the question of um, how did these books become part of the canon? Uh, well, in uh, uh, with respect to the Old Testament, uh, books became canonized at three different points. So you have the Torah canonized at one point. And then the prophets, the um, Navim, ca uh, canonized at one point, 
and then finally the Ketuvim becoming canonized at another point. Uh, how did these collections of books become canonized and become part of sacred scripture? Uh, each has a different uh, reason. So why did the Torah become sacred? Because of Moses, Moses the authoritative figure who had this from the very mouth of God. Uh, why the prophets? The prophets because post-exile the community looks back and in retrospect recognizes the words of all these prophets starting from the non-writing prophets, your Nathan and your Gad, um, starting from them and going on to the writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Uh, the post-exilic community recognizes these now as the fulfilled word of God and so they take cognizance of that and then canonize uh, these works, uh, much of which is the history of Israel as the fulfilled word of God. Um, another example why the Psalms, uh, because Psalms are traditionally used in public liturgy, in private liturgy, in temple, uh, in uh, homes and therefore the Psalms become canonized. So each book of the Old Testament there is a particular reason why it gets into the um, Old Testament or into the Hebrew Bible, there's a whole lot that doesn't. Uh, so for example you 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 will see uh, mentions of uh, uh, the uh, the records of the kings, uh, the chronicles of the kings and then you understand that uh, those are sources from which our kings and chronicles have been extracted. Then in Joshua for example you have a reference to the book of Yashar uh, which is lost to us. You have a reference to the book of the wars of Yahweh. We don't have that either. Uh, so what got into the canon finally into the Hebrew Bible uh, to come back to what I said earlier has dual agency. Uh, God inspires them, they are God breathed and therefore they are authoritative but human beings recognize that authority and therefore the uh, uh, second half of it is the human agency. Dual agency, God and humans coming together uh, simply not in writing of the books but also in selecting them and canonizing them into sacred scripture. Mm, all right, this is very helpful. Um, so the, uh, the aspect of God's revelation is there, but there's also a recognition of the revelation by the people. And as you mentioned for the Torah, for, uh, there was one reason why it was recognized because of Moses. And then uh, uh, for the Nevi'im, the prophets, there's another reason why they were recognized. So there are different reasons and situations within which humans recognize, oh, this is God's revelation to us. So that makes me think about um, the existence of apocryphal books, which you uh, also mentioned in your chapter. Uh, and you mentioned the fact remains that at some time uh, in the second century CE, Judaism closed its Bible without these books, a fact that directed the Protestant canon. Uh, but I'm also thinking uh, uh, these books are part of, uh, let's say, if I buy the um, NRSV Catholic version, Roman Catholic version, these books are part of the Bible. What does it mean when a canon is closed and who closes it? Because uh, it seems to exist in some Bibles around. What do we mean by that? Okay, uh, let, let's go to how each book gets into the um, sacred text 
to begin with. Now, each Old Testament book has a history. Uh, the book usually begins in oral form, as several pieces that are circulating orally, perhaps over generations, even a couple of hundred years, perhaps. The stories about Abraham, uh, Isaac, or Jacob, they, they are in oral circulation in a pre-literate society for perhaps hundreds of years before they start getting written down. So when are the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph uh, written down? We are not so sure. Perhaps it was Moses that started writing them down. And then perhaps it was only in the Solomonic period when uh, the country was at peace and could now look back and reflect on its own history. Perhaps it was then that it all got compiled together uh, through the hands of what we might call an editor. And then here you have uh, the book of Genesis uh, arrive at what we might call a rough first draft. And then it passes through the hands of more and more editors, generations of these, uh, who now are um, uh, rewriting bits, updating bits. Genesis 14 is such a good example of updating. If you read it, it's, it, um, it's a story about how um, Lot is taken away captive in uh, a little um, a regional um, battle, uh, you will find over and over again place names updated within brackets. Uh, there's a place name and within this bracket it says which is and then it gives another name. It's like uh, well cities in India. Now you might say Madras and within brackets uh, now Chennai or you might say um, Mumbai and say which used to be formerly Bombay like that. So you get editors working on these texts uh, to bring them up to date so that their audience, the audience of the day can understand them. And finally there comes a point at which editing peters out and what you get is a final form. This is the point at which the book is considered sacred text. And from this final form onwards, only copying happens and editing completely stops. At that point, we say the book is closed or canonized because it's only open to copying and not to any further um, editing. So uh, with the Hebrew Bible, there seems to have been three points at which canonization happened. The Torah, the five books that we know as the law, and then the um, Navim. Uh, the prophets, which is um, a whole collection of books, largely the history of Israel. And then you have the Ketuvim or the writing at three different points. Uh, not all scholars agree uh, uh, on the dating of these points, but it appears that there is a tripartite structure uh, to the Old Testament. Uh, each collection of books achieving sacred status at a particular point. And we should also remember that uh, there were councils that appear to have debated on whether some books should get in or not. And um, so, for example, uh, books like uh, Esther had a problem, at least uh, people, the rabbis uh, debated uh, whether Esther should get in at all. It doesn't mention the name of God. Should Ecclesiastes get in? Man, that is such a pessimistic book. Should it or not? Uh, and then... Um, um, let's say Proverbs. It looks like uh, the Egyptian collections of Proverbs. I mean, what's sacred about it? It looks so mundane. And so at least five books um, uh, seem to have been debated over and over. Song of Songs and Ezekiel being another two. Uh, uh, this only reinforces the idea that there is dual agency. Uh, there is inspiration is not limited or the, or the supervision of God is not limited only to the uh, writing of these books, but also uh, how they come together to form what we now have as the Old and New Testaments. Mm. So, uh, in a hypothetical sense, although uh, sometimes it's not hypothetical, it becomes real, I want to extend it uh, to our present time. Uh, 
we uh, say the canon is closed, but uh, what if uh, someone comes out with uh, an idea that they are inspired or this is God's revelation and uh, let's say, and again, this is not always hypothetical, it becomes real, that a community around them accepts their, uh, their book as uh, additional revelation and it's added. So how is this not part of the canon? What prevents it from being part of the canon and the recognized canon that we have? Uh, well, for this we go back to tradition and church history. Uh, actually, the canon that we hold today, the Protestant evangelical one, uh, like you mentioned just now, is not the same as, let's say, the, um, the Catholic Bible, uh, not the same as some Orthodox traditions either. Uh, and we Protestants have the habit of saying, look, they have extra books. Uh, actually, the reverse is true. We have lost books uh, because for uh, the last 2000 years, the, the church uh, before the Protestant uh, Reformation uh, used the longer version of the Old Testament. Uh, that is the 39 books that we already have, uh, plus seven other books with additions to Daniel, um, and additions to Esther, little chapter bits added in. This is the um, Bible which the church took on. It was largely in the Greek, translated from the Hebrew into the Greek. And uh, this longer Greek Old Testament is what the early church took on simply because they said what's good enough for Paul is good enough for us uh, because it's understood that this Greek Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint, uh, this is what Paul and uh, some of the apostles seems to have been citing from or quoting from because th here they are traveling uh, the um, Greek uh, world through the uh, boundaries of the Roman Empire and so when they come to Ephesus or Corinth or wherever and they are meeting up with the Jews in that area they are meeting Jews who are Greek speaking and so when they preach sermons to them they are preaching from the Septuagint and uh, so when the early church took over the Old Testament from Judaism in continuity with Judaism it wasn't so much the Hebrew text uh, with uh, its shorter canon but it was the longer Septuagint, the Greek Septuagint, with these um, larger number of books in it. That is what uh, went uh, uh, almost undisputed till uh, the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, at which point the whole uh, slogan, back to the Bible, uh, comes up again, Sola Scriptura. And what Scriptura? So we have to go back and uh, review what we count as Scripture. And it was with the Reformation that the decision was made to go back to the shorter canon, the Hebrew Bible. And that is how the Protestants lost those books. Uh, so that that make a very big difference uh, to our faith uh, and to our doctrines, since we're talking about doctrines. Uh, I don't think so. All that we need for our salvation and uh, all that we need for working out our faith every day, we have uh, in the 39 books of the Old Testament that is in our Protestant Bibles uh, and um, uh, whether it is the Orthodox 
Bible, there are there are several streams of the Orthodox, of course, or the Catholic Bible or the Protestant Bible. One thing we are all united about, and that is that the canon is closed. That's one thing that all of us agree on, uh, whichever tradition or persuasion we uh, belong to in the Christian world, Protestant, Orthodox, or uh, Catholic. So there is no question of adding on to what we already have. Um, well, uh, there are some sects in which the founder uh, imagines that he has received revelation that now adds on to these books and the Mormons are a very good example with uh, Joseph Smith adding on a whole uh, extra bit uh, and there are some other uh, quite vigorous uh, cults that might be trying to do that uh, but I think here we fall back on the tradition of the church that the canon is closed. Mm. So that's good to know that uh, despite um, let's say diversity in uh, the books that make up the canon, uh, there is agreement across traditions that it is actually closed. And uh, okay, that's good to know. <laughs> so, uh, and I want to ask you, as a person who teaches, um, for your students who really want to get deep into scripture, uh, would you advise them to go beyond the 66 books that we have and read uh, uh, beyond that? Would it be helpful? Um, Martin Luther, he considered the Apocrypha, the books uh, of the Apocrypha, the seven books plus the additions to uh, Daniel and Esther that I mentioned, he considered them profitable reading. And that's what Luther considered them, profitable reading. And when we do a um, course at Syaxia, which is called uh, the History and Literature of the Se uh, Second Temple Period, uh, we look at all these books as books that uh, um, belong to the period between the Testaments. And so they're extremely useful a study and quite eye-opening because they fill in the history for us. Uh, we are not at this conundrum where we've uh, looked at Malachi and is the tail end of the Persian period and then we open into the Gospels and here we are in the Roman period and uh, a whole new set of things is happening. So uh, we read these books as a bridge in terms of history so that fills in all the um, Greek period for us and introduces the Romans to us uh, so that we segue neatly into the New Testament and also it helps us to draw uh, bridges across from the Old Testament into the New Testament in terms of theology and doctrines, the same thing that we're talking about. So if you're talking about, for example, the doctrine of uh, heaven and hell, uh, there isn't much in the Old Testament to tell you what hell looks like. There's some very murky sheol and that's about it. Uh, but by the time you've come to the New Testament, uh, there is unquenchable eternal uh, fire and uh, uh, all sorts of such delights. And so you really don't know uh, how this becomes that. The doctrine of angels, uh, there's the odd angel in the Old Testament. By the time you come to the New Testament, the choirs of angels singing to announce the birth of Jesus. So angelology, demonology, uh, all these doctrines, ideas, concepts, uh, you can build across uh, or track across the apocryphal books which serve as a nice bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So yes, uh, they are profitable for reading as Martin Luther called them, uh, but they're not essential for our faith and practice and definitely not for our salvation. Right. But they can help us uh, understand 
the perspective of the people in the New Testament, why they thought certain things or why they saw things in a certain way. Exactly. It becomes very good background for both um, history and for philosophy and for theology and definitely for doctrines. Excellent. That, that is really helpful, especially for our audience, when uh, many of whom will be students and uh, trying to get deeper into this. Thank you. And that's a pity of it. Not too many seminaries teach Second Temple period Judaism. Yeah. <laughs> I could, yeah, bear witness to that. <laughs> uh, so uh, let's get into uh, the idea of scripture itself and uh, within, um, let's say, the South Asian context. Uh, because in your uh, chapter, you talk about uh, Islam and Hinduism as uh, close uh, neighbors. So in uh, both of these uh, traditions, the sacred scripture is retained and spoken uh, and read in the original language, Sanskrit uh, uh, for Hinduism and uh, Arabic for uh, Islam. And if uh, it is translated, then it's not considered the same. Uh, so living in this uh, context, in, uh, you've also mentioned um, uh, about how Christians in South Asia equated Smriti with the Bible and uh, have referred uh, to the biblical text as the Veda Vakya, the words of the Veda. But how were they making these uh, comparisons or putting the Bible as an equivalent text to these? When they were reading a translated text, did, these, did this cause a problem? And how do we compare with these texts which are not translated? Okay, let's talk about translations first. Um, now, I think we all know that in Hinduism and in Islam, the sacred text uh, remains in its original languages, whether that is Sanskrit or Arabic. Uh, and what is the reason for this? The sacred text is popularly thought of as an end in itself. See, what do I mean by end? The memorization and recitation of the holy words is very important. And these holy words have to be chanted in a very specific way. Uh, why? Because when you chant these holy words in a specific way, it is thought to invoke benefit for the person who recites. The very words are magical. The very words contain power. And so that is why these texts are learned in the original Sanskrit or original Arabic. Now Christian scripture is so different. Christian scripture is not thought of as an end in itself. It is merely the word with a small w pointing to the word with a big w. It is truth with a small d pointing to the truth with a capital T. And so what is this word with a big w and truth with the big t? It's Jesus. Uh, so we Christians look at the Bible as an introduction to God in his son Jesus. And so we read the Bible. Why? Not so that we memorize it and recite it and by the very recitation invoke benefit for ourselves. It's not for that. We read the Bible to understand and appreciate God and his world. Now if we memorize scripture at all like we do when we're children or later, uh, why do we memorize scripture? So as to practice it, as to put it into practice. We talk about storing up the word in our heart so that we may do what it asks us to do. Uh, we memorize scripture only to be encouraged, to be rebuked, to help us become more like Jesus. So that's why reading it in translation is just fine. We don't need word for word. It's not magic. 
uh, it's not a magical formula we don't need word for word we need sense for sense translations that will communicate the message of the Hebrew and Greek as faithfully as possible so having multiple translations uh, as we do uh, NIV ESV whatever having multiple translations only helps us understand that message better mm. Mm. so that is really helpful especially um, thinking of uh, life as an Asian and uh, <laughs> in India I uh, do remember like growing up uh, almost attributing a magical power to the Bible the text itself which I guess comes from the context that we uh, inhabited uh, growing up exactly um, probably call uh, uh, that attitude um, uh, a, a person who has that attitude we might call them a bibliophile uh, no what do you call them what, what might we call them um, the word has gone out of my head um, bibliolatry we might call that bibliolatry like idolatry where the bible then becomes an end in itself and worshipping it is enough uh, we don't have to go beyond it to the person that is pointing to and so for exams for um, some people some Christians might even um, put a small little Gideon's Bible into their pocket because then it's acting like this um, magic charm to uh, achieve something all by itself just by virtue of being the Bible and so um, now when we were looking for what to call the Bible the Christian Bible in um, let's say a country like India uh, um, Bible is still a Latin word isn't it so we look for the equivalent and uh, the Vedas uh, the sacred texts of the Hindus are the parallel and so we call this the Veda Vakya or the the word of the Veda we just appropriated an existing word and uh, used it to describe our sacred texts as well but in nature we understand how different the two are right right so it's um useful to incorporate i mean not useful only necessary to incorporate words from the context otherwise it would mean nothing there and yet also to differentiate the nuances of it when we mm. use it mm. in fact we sometimes call it the satya veda when we translate the satya mm. being the true veda uh, that's a little polemical uh, but what we're trying to say is that look this is the truth this is the ultimate this is the um, fullest um, revelation mm. of God so this is the Satya Veda the true Veda mm. and uh, looking at the chapter itself the doctrine of scripture I think you make a very helpful distinction as you spoke about the small t and the capital T the small w and the capital W I think that is something uh, that our uh, audience and uh, us when we work we need to keep that in mind because we're not especially in evangelical circles we're not far from what you call biblio bibliotry <laughs> bibliolatry bibliolatry yeah. <laughs> right so um, in the chapter you go more into detail about um, the canon and i would encourage our audience to actually get into the chapter we're just creating the top and there's a lot uh, in there um, so you say that there are three, uh, mainly three criteria for their recognition as sacred text, apostolicity, Catholicity, and orthodoxy. And you go into details of it uh, uh, in your chapter, but for our audience, could you just give us a brief 
overview of these what these criteria mean and how are they applied to the formation of New Testament uh, when we form the canon for the New Testament? Yeah, so uh, we understand then that the Old Testament had a different set of criteria for how the books got into the sacred text uh, and we mentioned some of that uh, a little while ago. Uh, for the New Testament, the criteria become much more uh, well-defined because uh, it's church councils that sit together and uh, work on these criteria. So from the early church period, as certain writings are beginning to be considered uh, uh, sacred, uh, councils come up with three criteria mainly for their recognition as sacred texts. These three are apostolicity, catholicity and orthodoxy. Now apostolicity, now that's the dominant criterion in the centuries before uh, Constantine and the uh, Holy Roman Empire. Uh, apostolicity requires that the book under question is written either by an authoritative eyewitness of Jesus' ministry, uh, as were the 12 disciples and later Paul, or by someone who's closely connected with that eyewitness. And so thus, Jesus' half-brothers, James and Jude, uh, though not disciples, are considered valid eyewitnesses. Mm, uh, Luke's apostolicity, for example, comes from his having access to first-hand accounts for the writing of his gospel as he says in Luke 1, 1 to 4, and from having traveled with Paul. Now Mark similarly, not a disciple, how is he legitimated? Uh, Mark is legitimated by his proximity to both Paul and Peter, as Acts will tell you. So this criterion of apostolicity meant that all the books of the New Testament were composed within the first century CE before the death of the longest living of Jesus' disciples, namely John. Now, Catholicity, that's the second criterion. Catholicity meant that the book was Catholic in the sense of universal. That is, the book was in use across the Christian world of that time and considered of value for the faith and for its practice. And the third criterion is that of orthodoxy or non-contradiction. So this is established in resistance to the heresies of the early centuries, all of which in some way are challenging apostolic teaching. So orthodoxy required that the book being considered for canonical status should be faithful to this teaching. And beyond that should be in continuity with the Old Testament also, which looks towards a future restoration by an agent of God. So Jesus in his life and work as seen was seen as that agent, uh, one who could complete the fulfillment of the ancient promises and the prophecies. So in summary, now by the end of the 4th century, the 27 books of the New Testament were all seen as authoritative and divinely inspired. Why? Because they were a apostolicity. They were composed in connection with an apostle. Second, um, orthodox, that is doctrinally sound. And third, they were Catholic, that is, widely circulated within and used by the churches. Hmm. Uh, this is very helpful to understand uh, the process because uh, many a times the picture is given this, that this was just arbitrarily chosen by a group of people who got together and decided, and it was more a power play. But the fact that it's Catholic as in universal read across it's not just the powerful reading it or deciding, but it's something that is spread across Christianity, early Christianity. And uh, the connection necessitated with the Old Testament 
it's not just something that these people decided is good for our power, but it's something that has to connect with the past also. Okay, uh, so um, we've talked about uh, what you said about the uh, dual uh, revelation, deck revelation, from, uh, the dual agency in revelation from God and uh, uh, and humans. This is from a, uh, our Christian understanding of it and then the Jewish uh, uh, canon also in the Old Testament. Um, can you tell us a bit about revelation in Hinduism and Islam and how does that differ or are there overlaps with uh, Christian ideas of revelation? Um, right. So um, the point of this whole chapter is uh, to speak about how we could engage our doctrine, uh, the doctrine of uh, revelation, uh, with parallel concepts in um, other religions, religions uh, uh, that we encounter every day. Now, common to all sacred texts is the idea of revelation. That's why they are sacred, because they are thought to be God-revealed. Uh, so what is revelation then? It's the self-disclosure of deity to humans. So now it's profitable here to see how Christianity uh, sits or doesn't sit alongside the two major religions in uh, South and Southeast Asia. One very ancient, Hinduism, and the other relatively young, Islam. Now see, in Hindu sacred literature, uh, the most sacred category is the Shruti category. Shruti meaning uh, that which is heard. So Shruti literature is the repository of holy hearing by those who were able to penetrate the realm of the divine. Yeah. Uh, but what is more important or interesting is that uh, the Shruti category that is revelation uh, from God is open-ended, open-ended to the present day. In what way? Uh, a spiritually awake person, such as a guru, uh, a guru is a master, may be considered divine himself and then it is from him that Shruti or the scriptures proceed and the world receives guidance and inspiration. So can you see that? There is a continuum from the uh, texts to God-men to those who might still be able to open their mouths and uh, speak the word of God to you. Uh, so that is the open-endedness of revelation in uh, Hinduism. So this uh, distinguishing uh, distinctive here about Shruti revelation is that uh, it is not confined to the cover covers of a sacred book, but it's on a continuum that stretches from a time that's now shrouded by the mists of antiquity down to the present day. And so this really explains the veneration that Hindus might display uh, towards someone they consider a guru. And it's a veneration that to an Indian Christian would seem bafflingly irrational. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that guru is seen as the wellspring of what ongoing revelation from God. Now, uh, let's look at Islam. Islam, on the contrary, uh, is revelation directed to one single individual. In uh, 610 uh, AD, Muhammad has this encounter in a desert cave. He hears an angel, the angel Gabriel, urging him to recite, recite in the name of their Lord. And so the words that he had to recite were revealed to him. And with this begins a series of revelations covering a period of 23 years, over which is disclosed to this person 
series of revelations. Now, with the Quran, there are two significant points to note. One is that the revelation is mediated by an angel. It's not direct, but mediated by an angel. And the other is that this whole body of revelation, which now constitutes the Quran, is not the self-disclosure of deity but rather of the will of that deity and therefore the Quran it doesn't communicate who Allah is but only instructs the human how to live according to Allah's will it's a big difference huh? so this nature of revelation in Islam which includes an angelic intermediary and it excludes self-disclosure it points to what it points to the nature of Allah as one who is utterly transcendent one who entirely stays out of human experience yeah okay now come to uh, the christian scripture now revelation in the old testament is sometimes mediated by heavenly messengers we know that angels but more often the revelation is direct see the word of the lord it comes directly to the prophet so that he could declare uh, with the formula the prophetic formula thus says the lord he could speak on behalf of the lord or the lord would manifest himself or his presence to human perception uh, through a range of media uh, sometimes it be natural phenomena uh, burning bushes, shaking mountains, it might be the angel of the Lord, it might be just glory, it might be fire from heaven and um, uh, sometimes even as a, a human being who then suddenly disappears. Uh, so the um, Christian uh, old, uh, the Old Testament has God uh, directly involved in this uh, revelation and what does he do? There is self-disclosure right through the Old Testament. God is saying who he is. I am holy. I am this. I am that. It constitutes divine self-disclosure. And that reaches its climax in the New Testament where this, this self-disclosure reaches its fullness as God incarnated. God who takes on human flesh, human form and becomes the image of the invisible God as Colossians 1.15 will tell us. Uh, Jesus subsumes into himself both the message and the medium and that's why he's called the word of God and so thus for Christianity revelation is not just a system of divine oracles revelation is the path of God in history and the climax is reached when God enters history himself and so just to sum up we could say that in contrast to the sacred texts of other religions the primary agent of divine revelation in the Christian faith is not the Bible but rather Jesus the function of the Old Testament and the New Testament together is to point to Jesus and to bear witness to him and that's a big difference from the way uh, Hinduism and Islam uh, perceive their sacred texts mm. that is really helpful so um, uh, this also connects to what you said before um, the text itself points to uh, Jesus and it is God directly involved in history and the revelation. He's not just using agents and letting his will known, but it's the revelation of God himself, the person of God himself that is occurring in what we call scripture. Uh, so we've seen that the scripture points to the capital W word Jesus and um, God speaks in it. Coming to the third person of the Trinity, where does the spirit uh, figure in uh, scripture? And relatedly, uh, where is the church as God's people in this conversation? Mm. 
I suppose the classic statement of the Holy Spirit's work in the inspiration of scripture is still 2 Timothy 3.16, which we all know well. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God, or literally, God breathed. That's the word, God breathed. And so John Stott does uh, an explanation uh, to say, well, here is God, and here are the thoughts in his head. This is all analogical, of course. It's just an analogy, a uh, comparison. Uh, in language we understand. So here is God with these thoughts in his head that he wants to communicate and when he breathes them out, they come out in the form of words. Uh, the outbreathing of God then is the Holy Spirit and this is the Holy Spirit that um, inspires, that enables writers to write uh, transforms the divine thoughts into human words which uh, eventually get on to the page. Uh, so uh, the outbreathing of God then becomes the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit has yet another function and that is in actualizing the big W, the the capital W uh, word which is Jesus himself because it is by the mediation of the Holy Spirit that that word is birthed even and that word is born and so here is the uh, uh, work of the Holy Spirit uh, one in um, bringing words uh, out of the thoughts of God uh, into the minds and the hearts of those who write the word small w and here is the Holy Spirit superintending the birth of the capital W Jesus the incarnated God so what might the church do uh, with uh, the uh, word that the small w word the Bible that comes into our hands we receive this revelation uh, we um, move from this word into understanding uh, Jesus the capital W word and then as a community uh, with humility we do the best to read and interpret and apply the Bible carefully and prayerfully to our everyday walk into our journey of becoming more like Jesus mm. Mm. I like this um, the use of word journey in that uh, and I think this also connects with a very initial uh, question and conversation about the dynamic nature of uh, doctrine in which we are still working this out as people. Uh, so uh, the word, the scripture, points to the capital W, Jesus. Um, but you also introduce this other idea. The Bible affects transformation by pointing to Jesus as the only means by which fellowship with God becomes available to anyone and beyond that by calling into being that fellowship. So it is not just pointing or giving us a roadmap to the fellowship, it's also a calling into being that fellowship. So how uh, does the scripture uh, make this fellowship available uh, with God? What do you mean when you write so let's talk about the pointing okay when we say that the bible points to jesus um uh, how would that actually work now uh, not everybody's agreed on exactly how that works and that's why we have in the zondervan series a forthcoming uh, volume uh, to be released in this year 2022 um 
uh, in their counterpoint series uh, titled five views of Jesus in the Old Testament five views of Jesus in the Old Testament and so you have uh, five uh, different approaches to uh, well, finding Jesus in the Old Testament or understanding Jesus in the Old Testament uh, and uh, some of those approaches uh, might call themselves the redemptive history approach or the Christotelic approach or the Christocentric approach uh, I've contributed a view there and uh, what I do is uh, an intertextual approach so what I do is uh, look at one Old Testament uh, passage side by side with one New Testament passage. The two passages have to have um, a similar theme running through them, what we might call a dominant icon. So for example, you might look at Genesis 22, which is a sacrifice of uh, Isaac by his uh, father Abraham, uh, the ordeal of Isaac we might call it. Uh, and then we might look at Philippians 2, which is also talking about a son who submits himself to the will of the father. And by reading these two texts side by side, intertextually, uh, we understand better the God of the Old Testament and we understand God better because of the New Testament. You see, so we understand uh, uh, God better from the Old Testament into the New Testament because of the incarnated Jesus. And uh, how does this help our relationship with God? Well, it's by understanding someone better and better, understanding God better and better in this case, uh, that we increase the depth of our relationship with Him. Yeah, so uh, we've talked about, uh, we've talked about uh, the Christian scripture itself and then our relationship with our neighbors. And in this conversation, we've seen that there are uh, points of contact, but there are also very significant differences. Um, uh, my last question regarding the chapter is, how do we sit in dialogue with the religious other? Because you made a crucial point that it's something that's unavoidable. We are, in Asia, we are surrounded by different religions, different faith traditions, and that is a reality of being Asian. Uh, there are points of overlap that may form uh, common ground for conversation and there are differences also. So how do these work together uh, to uh, help us in dialogue? Right, so um, the question um, probably here is uh, what sort of dialogue? Now we know that there's dialogue at the theological level, theological dialogue between scholars from different faith communities. And now see, that will inevitably lead to an impasse when we evangelicals start putting out our exclusive claim. And what's that claim? That the Christian Bible is unique and it's incontestable and that is the fullest and the ultimate revelation of God. Uh, once we make that claim, dialogue stops. Uh, so I am not so particularly uh, interested in dialogue at that level and those who are doing it, uh, God bless them. Um, I'm thinking more of dialogue at the most simple level, the level of talking to your neighbor over, uh, over the wall, across the gate, uh, when you meet him at the um, local shop. Uh, I'm thinking of dialogue at that level. So when we talk one-on-one, -on -one, or perhaps in small groups with those of a different faith, I'm thinking of dialogue at that level. So we can start there with a the big difference. What does scripture mean to them? It probably means just an end, it itself being a magical formula. But what does scripture mean to us? Scripture is just an introductory letter to a person. Would you like to read it so, so as to get to know this person? And that could help start a conversation that helps someone meet Jesus. 
Yeah, I, uh, I like this idea of um, conversations across the wall because sometimes, especially in academia, we get so enamored by the abstract uh, conversation and we want to win uh, the debate and win it decisively, uh, whereas perhaps uh, actual dialogue happens across the wall, even for yeah, even theologians. theologians, because we do have walls and neighbors. <laughs> we do, I mean, we do exist in the world and not an abstraction. <laughs> that is very helpful. Uh, this has been wonderful talking about the chapter, but I want to zoom out for our audience. Uh, what are you working on nowadays uh, and what can people look forward to from you? And are there places where they can follow your work uh, and not be limited just to this conversation that we had? Um, right, right now, I'm doing something um, along the lines of what we've been speaking about, having uh, conversations uh, between the Bible and another sacred text. Uh, so the book I'm working on uh, is an intertextual reading of the Song of Songs with um, sacred love poem in Hinduism, 12th century AD in Sanskrit, called the Geet Govinda, or the Song of the Dark Lord, the Geet Govinda. So uh, both of them are almost of equal length. Both of them are written as love songs from a devotee to a deity. And both of them, interestingly, have very, very similar themes. So I'm looking at themes across these two pieces of sacred text, one sacred to us and the other sacred to Hinduism, and looking to see how reading them side by side might help us to um, become better devotees of Jesus. I'm not looking at them polemically side by side. I'm not looking at them from above, you know, which God bigger, which God stronger. I'm looking at from below, from the heart of a devotee who writes these love songs. And I'm saying, look, uh, on this theme of, let's say, uh, losing and seeking, which is a theme in the Song of Songs. Uh, the woman going seeking after her lover in the dead of the night and in all those dangerous alleys in the city. And here's the theme of seeking in the Gita Govinda. Uh, how might our devotion to our God be uh, deepened, made richer, uh, by reading it alongside similar aspirations written by a devotee uh, of another God in another faith? And so that helps us read from below without compromising uh, on uh, the exclusive uh, uh, faith claim that uh, we make. And so that is my next piece of work. And um, it will come out in a series called um, Christian Commentary on Non-Christian Sacred Texts uh, by uh, Peters and uh, Erdman's jointly. That is very interesting. I will look forward to that uh, myself because um, I like the fact that you're taking a non-polemical approach to it and the idea of reading from below, which is often lost to us. <laughs> yeah, um, because the colonial way of reading uh, book side, sacred books side by side was always from the idea of besting the other. You know, mm -hmm. how can we prove that we are bigger, stronger, better, fuller uh, than the other? Yeah. That doesn't mm. get anywhere anyway. Well, that's, uh, that's really helpful that you point that out. In some ways, our reading is also inherited from our leftover from our colonial past. Legacy. Your project in some ways uh, is part of the process of decolonizing our reading also. 
That's exciting. Is, is, is there a page or uh, an academia account that you have that students can follow and uh, look at work oh, that you're doing? Oh, Matash, I'm not so much of a <laughs> person that way. So I'd say if uh, I can send you a list of what I'm working on and then you can just put it up. I don't even know where uh, all of my stuff is available even. Uh, but I can send you my CV and you can reconstruct something that you can uh, okay. put up at the end of the interview maybe. Right, we, we will have it in the description so that students yeah, can follow yeah, from yeah, there. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Dharamraj. This has been wonderful. Um, and uh, for all our audience, um, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. We invite you to be part of these conversations. Uh, think about the uh, uh, book for which uh, Dr. Dharamraj is writing right now. It's at five views and she's presenting one view. You needn't agree with us on everything. You needn't agree with Dr. Dharamraj uh, on everything, but uh, being part of the conversation is what helps us grow. So join us. And if you agree, that's great. If you don't agree, that's also great. We want to hear from you. So looking forward to hearing from all of you. And thank you once again, Dr. Dharamraj. This has been wonderful. We wish you all the best for your upcoming projects and look forward to more from you. Thank you so much, Matthias. God bless all that you do. Thank you. If you enjoyed this video, Please don't forget to hit the like button, subscribe to our channel, and follow us on our socials. The links are in the description below. We have new content every week, so don't forget to hit the bell for updates. See you in our next video.